I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how do we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with your investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. This is our 20th episode. So for episode 20, we read The Virtue of Selfishness by Ayn Rand from 1964. Ayn Rand was born Elisa Rosenbaum on February 2nd, 1905 in St. Petersburg, Russia. Born in a middle-class Jewish family, she was 12 years old when the communist revolution in Russia began. Her father's business was confiscated, and the family fled to Crimea before returning to St. Petersburg after the revolution in 1921. She enrolled at Petrograd State University that year, but was temporarily purged from the university along with other middle-class students in 1924. She was allowed to graduate later on that year, then enrolled at the State Technetium for Screen Arts, where she first adopted the name Ayn Rand. Rand moved to the United States in 1926. She quickly found work in Hollywood as a screenwriter for Cecil B. DeMille. She had a play produced on Broadway in 1935. After two early novels that were initially unsuccessful, she achieved fame with her 1943 novel, The Fountainhead. In 1957, Rand published her best-known work, the novel Atlas Shrugged. Later, she turned to nonfiction, publishing her own periodicals and releasing several collections of philosophical essays, including The Virtue of Selfishness in 1964. All of these works were in the service of the philosophy Rand developed, objectivism. Objectivism was similar to libertarianism and advocated reason as the only means of acquiring knowledge, rejecting religion, while supporting ethical egoism instead of altruism. She was critical of most previous philosophers and philosophical traditions, but favored the ideas of Aristotle, Aquinas, and classical liberalism. Rand continued to promote objectivism until her death in 1982. Although opposed by many conservative thinkers of her time, including William F. Buckley, she became a significant influence among libertarians and some conservatives, including most notably Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan. All right. Well, it goes without saying that Ayn Rand is a very controversial figure. Yep. Uh, seems like uh, you either love her or hate her, love her or hate her. And after reading this book, I think I understand why, because, I mean, she's obviously brilliant, but she does not mince words. And by the title of this book, The Virtue of Selfishness, we can tell that she relishes controversy. <laughs> yes. And so let's dive into the philosophy. She's She's developed a new way to look at ethics. Uh, a new foundation for mor- morality, you know, right and wrong, that she calls objectivism, which you mentioned in the intro. So objectivist ethics holds that the standard by which one judges good or evil is man's life or that which is required for man's survival. Since reason is man's basic means of survival, that which is proper to the life of a rational being is the good, and that which negates, opposes, or destroys life is evil. So the achievement of his own happiness is man's highest moral purpose. Objectivist holds that the actor must always be the beneficiary of his action and that man must act for his own rational self-interest. So this builds sort of a rational selfishness is what she calls it. And hence the title of the book, The Virtue of Selfishness. So let's compare this real quickly. 
you know, there are other paradigms of morality. You have, for example, utilitarianism, which says basically the most good for the most people is what's moral. Mm-hmm. You have a uh, deontological, which is sort of Kant, which means, you know, do, do your duty. There is an objective right and wrong. You just have to do, do your duty and that's right. Or, you know, we had last a uh, couple of weeks ago, Leo Strauss discussing natural rights. So if you're basically trying to find what aligns with nature, what's right according to nature in the universe. And you have Christian ethics, which is like, you know, beatitudes, um, blessed are the poor in, in, in spirit. You know, he who will lose his life for God will save it. All of these more or less, except the, the ontological doing your duty, all of these others are sort of like finding what's right to kind of help people. We call that altruism, right? And mm-hmm. uh, altruism is action taken for the benefit of others. Any, anything that you do for the benefit of others is good. And whatever you do for your own self is evil. And so the beneficiary is the criterion of moral value, she says. But she flips that right on its head. And with objectivism, she's saying the complete opposite. Basically like whatever is good for you and your own survival. Survival is kind of the key the human survival, that is what is ethical. That is what is good. And any action or contingency that, that puts your survival in jeopardy, well, that's the evil. So that's completely opposite of altruism, right? So right. let's use an example. There's a fire in the house. You know, the altruist and basically all these other ethics would say the moral thing, the heroic thing to do is to save the child and run out of the house and preserve the life of the child, even at own risk of your own life. And maybe even you may even lose your life in order to save the child. What objectivists would say, what Ayn Rand would say is complete opposite, actually. It's actually more moral to save yourself because what the the highest order of morality and ethics is to survive and to preserve your own life. So this is why we see it's pretty controversial because as you know, Kyle, you said in the, in the intro, this is ethical egoism. In other words, like what is ethical is basically whatever is selfish and egotistical and, and whatever can mm-hmm. deliver you and help you to survive. Yeah. I, I, one, one thing that did surprise me in this collection of essays, because that, that is my understanding of objectivism too. And that's what you find in most of the book, but in her, um, her essay, the ethics of emergencies, she gets into a lot in those sort of, I mean, first she kind of attacks the idea of philosophical questions are always being discussed as these crazy emergencies, like the trolley speeding down the track towards different groups of people. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's not typically how we live our lives. But um, she also talked, I mean, altruism is a bad word in Rand's lexicon. That is, that is like evil to her. Um, and sacrifice is also one of those words that she uses at, with disgust. But she also talks about, you know, that if like a man who spends everything he has to help his sick wife is not violating the principles of objectivism, because if he loves that, if he loves his wife, then that sort of thing is not a sacrifice. She kind of twists the meaning of the, the word, because it, it, it ultimately makes him happy to help someone who is dear to him. I think so. It, we get this idea of objectivism as really being just pure. I think she would call irrational egoism where it's like the hell with everybody else. 
only me. And I think she tempers that a little in here. I mean, she wouldn't call it tempering because she's not a person to temper or anything. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is all, this is very black and white philosophy here. But um, I think, you know, using your strength and your resources to preserve something that is important to you, whether it be your own health or somebody else's health that you love very much, is still, that just kind of dips the toe into helping others. Um, although I think she would say, if you don't think it's rational, you certainly don't have to. Yeah. You know, it's not, no one should ever be forced to help anyone else. And the one, I mean, one, one of, one of the uh, critiques she answers is that people ask her, well, how, what would happen to the poor under objectivism? And her answer is you would be free to help them if you want to. Yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's accurate, but it's, it's flippant, but it's accurate. You know, it's sort of, and that's sort of what you see in modern libertarianism too, is that yeah. yeah, people can help each other if they want, if that's what makes you feel good, go for it, you know, give money to people who need it, give food to the, to the hungry, help folks out. But she'll never call that the good in the way that most other major philosophies in, in the Western world. And I assume the Eastern, I just don't know as much about the East, but you know, most Western philosophies will say that that sort of thing is good. All the, the major Western religions say that sort of thing is good. Um, she'll say, no, it's not particularly good, but if it makes you happy, go for it. You know, if that's how you get your kicks. Right. So everything's funneled through the self and, and the, you know, ego, personal ego. And so you can, you can help others if you want to. Yeah. Like you say, if you get your kicks, but that's not moral. And so, mm -hmm. you know, her pre preoccupation here for, for the ethics and that morality is to basically say, you know, just like I could have Cheerios or oatmeal for breakfast, that's not a moral decision. It's just sort of a sure, why not do it, do it, do what makes you happy. She's trying to set a higher order, basically like it's actually good in and of itself for you to you know, save yourself. So, you know, maybe if it was your own child, you could derive some personal value out of saving your child in the fire building. But what if it's just someone else's kid that you don't know, you know, type of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, once again, like how do you funnel that through yourself? Cause you don't necessarily care one way or the other and it's not critical for your survival. But what, what I've really, what really jumped out to me of this and you mentioned to me offline is I, I didn't read uh, Ayn Rand when I was younger. This is the first book I've ever read. And I kind of wish I would have when I was younger, but because <laughs> I'm sure it would have made a difference because this is just kind of like the teenage, like center of the universe. Can't, mm -hmm. can't step outside of himself to see like, Oh, mom actually is doing all these things, making my life possible and whatever. Yeah. Let me say for your friends and family, I'm glad you didn't. Cause I mean, I, <laughs> I read these, I read Atlas Shrugged when I was 19 and Fountainhead shortly thereafter. And I went through that college objectivist phase for a while, you know, because it's, it's a very, when you read this, I mean, her writing is clear. It's very precise. It's readable. It's logical. It, it's the kind of thing that would attract someone who's looking for answers, looking for a way the world should work. You know, like a lot of the, a lot of the philosophies that uh, conservatives have opposed over the years are like that too, because this is, this is utopian in a way. Um, not in the same way that communism is. I mean, she hates communists, 
for a lot of reasons, not not the least of which is she grew up under communism. I mean, she has a system that is uh, is utopian and, and attractive in that same way, and that it's yeah, like you were saying for the for the teenage mind especially, it's very well. This is it. This is all the answers. You know, this is yeah, yeah. Um, my selfishness is not it's not a, a vice. It's actually a virtue. You know, so it's I'm, yeah, I'm selfishness good. Is a virtue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this just uh, really caters to the teenage male, in particular, mm-hmm. who's playing video games. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of good. Dude. There's a lot of good in here. Um, there's a lot of things worth thinking about. But it, I mean, that's it. it took me back when I was reading it to you know, half a lifetime ago. And it's it's interesting how how perspective changes as you get to be middle aged as we are. Mm-hmm. So for her objectivist ethics. What is ethical, and this is going to feed into her views on government, what is ethical is those things which are rational, productive, independent men in a rational, productive, free society. What is unethical are parasites, moochers, looters, brutes, or a society geared to their needs. Yeah. (laughs) So it doesn't surprise that she would say, the only proper moral purpose of a government is to protect man's rights, to protect uh, one another from violence, you know, protect their ability to pursue life, liberty, and happiness for life, liberty, and property. And she will go so far as even further to say without property rights, no other rights are possible. We can talk about that in a second, but she says this multiple times and it really just jumped out at me. Like what is ethical is being productive, productivity. And what is unethical is being a parasite or a moocher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't mince words, that's for sure. But it, it, it's it's a point. I mean, if you're starting with the idea that, I mean, and she goes into that is-ought distinction that we were going, talking about with Strauss. And I think she takes the, if I remember, the opposite view. Yeah, that, she does. Um, mm-hmm. Because we are alive and a living entity is, determines what it ought to do. And that, I mean, her we talk about life, liberty, and property in, in classical liberalism, but I think for Rand, life is number one. That's where this all emanates from. Anything that preserves life, that lets us preserve our own lives, whether from nature or from people who are trying to bring us down or sap our resources or weaken us, anything that preserves that life is good. And it all flows from that. Like we have liberty because it preserves life. We have property, I think, because it preserves life. So she's got a very clear source of virtues, which I think is an advantage over a lot of other philosophies, whether you agree with it or not. Mm-hmm. It's it's clear. You know, it's yeah, man's absolutely. life is the touchstone, and everything flows from that. And it's uh, it's it really strikes me that this is. This would fit well maybe with a prehistoric sort of small family tribe kind of thing. You know, like we, we obviously don't have computers and um, farms and grocery stores. Instead, it's like every day is a struggle. Every day is a challenge in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And to me, this was this almost this struck me as kind of like uh, an ethics of a the cave people, you know, or whatever, you know, like whatever it takes to live, that's what's good. And we're not going to worry about saving some stranger from a burning building. Instead, like we're going to do what it takes for us, for each other. 
for myself to survive. I need this group of people. And so that's where, that's how my, uh, my ethics and morality extend to helping others is to the extent that it ultimately helps me. You know, if, if you're in that kind of a situation of just pure survival, Mm -hmm. but it it just seems like a, a, a tougher fit, uh, in contemporary society when, when we have so much, um, uh, surplus and, and, and life is particularly in America is, you know, pretty cushy. We don't necessarily have to crawl over our neighbor in order to survive. Yeah. And I think that's why instead of, um, like actual murderers and, and robbers, she's going after looters and moochers, you know, which to her mind is anyone who's, who's basically drafting off anyone else's success, you know, anyone who's living off of taxes or living off of, you know, charity or living off of anything that they didn't work for or earn or even inherit miss the uh, the lacuna and objectivism is no one ever mentions inherited wealth but that's you know and that's where that's where the leftists usually come at it like, yeah yeah isn't 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 an heiress or an heir also a moocher but <laughs> that's a different that's a <laughs> that that she doesn't really get into but you know anyone who's like uh living off of somebody else's earning whether that person be a welfare recipient or a bureaucrat or just a ne'er-do-well who's getting handouts from his relatives those are more recognizable than i think that the state of nature enemies that probably fit more neatly with objectivism mm-hmm. yeah you know let's use a real life example let's how about for let's let's just say uh hurricane katrina how would that have played out for, for an objectivist those folks who were trapped in the superdome and you know who you, you know they some of them definitely could have gotten out beforehand uh, many and so basically they're helpless not just the ones in the the superdome but you know you have an ent- entire section of the city that's just kind of really poor and really helpless and i remember working in the senate and that, that was earlier in my career and so i was the responding to letters that folks would write into the senator and you know they'd complain about this or that and when hurricane mm-hmm. katrina hit we got an absolute flood of letters and from the media reports you would think that those those letters would be saying you know that you know bush is a scoundrel you know why isn't he doing more like help out like save these people but the real you know, interesting factor here was the overwhelming majority of letters that I got, and I won't say which state this was, but a couple thousand at least. The overwhelming majority said, "That's their problem." Like, what? <laughs> what? And these? What? Why are these people like so dependent on government to survive, and you know, and everything? And it, it was really kind of surprising to me, even though I was maybe leaned more in that direction, but but it was a little bit more shocking. I think that's where the objectivists kind of would come down is have to be sort of like, Hey, look, we, we can help these people to the extent we can help them. But like what it really uncovered was not the, the scandal of, of the haves and the have nots in America for some people, for some people it un- unveiled the scandal of, I think what sh- she, Ayn Rand would say, or the parasites and the moochers and people who 
basically live off government welfare. And then when times are come to emergency, they're completely helpless themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe a more charitable way to describe it than, than she would use is just learned helplessness, which is, I think a lot of conservatives critique of the welfare state is not only does it perpetuate bad values, but it, it degrades good values like self-reliance because after a few generations of never having to have self-reliance, it's easy to forget. You know I mean? We think these things are innate to the human condition, but I mean, as Rand says, uh, she, she believes humans are born as blank slates and can mm-hmm. learn different philosophies. So I think yeah, her view of that would be that this is what we've done to ourselves and that we've condemned the weakest in society by our teaching of a, a false philosophy of, of helplessness. Mm-hmm. Although I, I don't know that her solutions would necessarily be any better. I mean, libertarians always talk about insurance. <laughs> There's always a lot of insurance involved in their schemes. So everyone in such an area would have had to have flood insurance and maybe a, maybe a investment in a corporation that would agree to get them out in the event of a flood. If, you know, they paid a certain premium every month, that sort of thing. You know, I mean, there are libertarian schemes often have a lot of ways of getting around the coercion of taxes, but it also requires people to look after themselves and be responsible. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sometimes even to be responsible beyond their means, either their personal psychic means, their emotional availability of responsibility, and also their physical, like their, uh, their financial means. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're pretty broke, you're not buying insurance, you know, for the event of maybe a category five hurricane rolls through here. Like you're trying to get some food, you know, it's not, yeah. it's hard to plan that far ahead when you're looking, when you're paycheck to paycheck. And that, I mean, I think that's something that objectivism never really recognizes. And maybe it's, maybe if we started out with this utopian system that everyone would approach life a little differently, but I kind of don't think we would. And that's. That's one way I, I've personally changed since I first read Ayn Rand's works mm-hmm. 20 years ago was some people can't handle their business, you know, for whatever reason, either just because they're not mentally there. They've got addictions. They've got problems that, you know, they don't have any money. There's, there's a lot of reasons why somebody might in a Katrina situation end up, you know, clinging onto a roof and hoping somebody would come by. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that she would have to make the same kind of core assumption as, as you know, a, a basic economics model of uh, assuming rational actors who have yeah. perfect information. And you really, uh, you really almost have to assume that a baseline level of talent and ability. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that you can't do that. I mean, she, she views as virtuous those who produce more and and I think there's merit to that thought because we will get to this, I think, why, why it's important to have people who have who generate surplus. But what about those people who are just not just flat, not smart enough to do to know necessarily what's in their best interest and and how to be you know, rational? Some just some people just can't quite be. Now, I don't I think that's a minority. I don't think that's the, mm. the majority of the population, but. There, there is some percentage of the population that is just never going to build their own company into a billion dollars. Yeah, I think this could work for 
probably greater than 90% of the people. If we really put our minds to it and cut back everything in government and, you know, really made people sink or swim on their own merit, I think most people could handle it because most people have handled it in human history, you know, even under Mm -hmm. various regimes of the past, you know, you might, we might talk about Europe having absolute monarchy at the time of our revolution. But absolute monarchy didn't mean taking care of anybody, you know, it just meant having all the power, Mm -hmm. you know, so in those countries, people mostly did all right. But yeah, there's, there's always going to be people who can't, you know, this is a, I call this objectivism utopian, but utopian should really encompass, encompass all people. And this doesn't. So, I mean, that's, there's a lot of good here, but it's never, it's never going to, there's always going to be people left out of an objectivist system and left out in the, in a way that will mean they'll probably die. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, that's, um, that's hard for, if you're ever, you might like these ideas and, but then if you ever get in government, that's going to be hard to impose because you're going to say, well, you know, that's, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be the guy responsible for that. At least I hope you would, you know, mm-hmm. some people might not care, but that, that anti-altruism, while it's logically appealing, has has some practical flaws. Yeah, and again, productiveness, pro- productivity is her one of her highest values. She has this distinction between values and virtues, but I don't know that it's worth going through it. But basically, no, I don't think so. Productivity, productiveness. You know, you should never seek the unearned or undeserved, and assume full responsibility for your actions. I think there's some merit to that. You know, I yeah. I I like the kind of stoic view of the world that, you know, a radical uh, self-responsibility, self-reliance to the extent you can. We we could use more of that, I believe, in society. (laughs) Yeah. When I hear, when I hear that that sort of thing, like never, never sequel to unearned is that's what I think when I hear middle-class people talking about, they want Medicare for all. Why do you want to be on welfare? Right. You have a job. (laughs) You have, you support yourself. You own a house. Yeah. The whole point of being middle class is that you can stand on your own feet. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there will be emergencies. I mean, if a Category 5 hurricane came to my town, the government might not, might have to come by in a boat and get me off my roof. I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think I'd leave first. But there are always emergencies that happen, fires and things. But for the most part, getting out of poverty means supporting yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. You know, It's that you're not, it's that you're living as a fully realized adult. I don't know why you'd want to give that up. And that's that part of objectivism has always appealed to me is that why should we want to be dependent? Why do we want to live life as a child as a ward of the government? If you don't have to, some people are always going to have to because they can't handle themselves, but that, that should never be a condition you aspire to any more than you aspire to be in a mental asylum. Well, you don't have to work. Yeah, but you're locked up in the crazy house. It's not good. (laughs) So I, that, I mean, those, the virtue of, I mean, industry as a virtue, work as a virtue, I, I fully get behind. And I think that can fit in even the non-atheist philosophy, whereas a lot of Rand's other values um, are, I think, intrinsically tied up with her rejection of athe- rejection of theism and mm-hmm. anything supernatural. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So when it comes to economic systems and, and government, you know, she says... Capitalism is the only system that can uphold and protect individual rights. She's very big on individual rights, obviously, as we see, because uh, her her ethics, her reason for being, you know, it was very individualistic. 
So she says about capitalism, progress can come only out of the surplus from those men whose ability produces more than their personal consumption requires. I found that really interesting because there's a lot of truth to it. You know, the value that's created in the free market really is created by the surplus of others, benefits a much broader swath of people. So she says, capitalism is the only system where such men are free to function. Those who, who can produce more, you know, they're stifled in a monarchy or, and she hates socialism. We'll get into this, but in capitalism, these people are free to thrive. And so when you're working towards your own survival, when you're focusing on yourself and your own productivity and survival, you can produce more than you need in a capitalist system because it provides incentives to do so. And she says progress, like that is societal uh, progress, is accompanied by a constant rise in the general level of prosperity. This is something that we hit multiple times with Friedman, with Hayek, you mm-hmm. know, basically like if if you want society to advance, you know, all you leftists, if you actually want society to move forward, capitalism is your engine. You know, you wouldn't have all these these individual rights that we have today if not for capitalism and and private property. Yeah, I really enjoyed her contrast um, between something like the pyramids of Egypt, which were massive structures, but all built by slaves under kings, mm-hmm. with the the skyline of Manhattan, which is, I think, hard. I mean, because, maybe because she immigrated to New York first before going out to California. But that's something, I mean, imagine coming out of a communist country and seeing this thing, nobody made them build those buildings. You know, that was because people were successful and wanted to be more successful and wanted to, yeah, to yeah. build and create things that would further their success and ends up benefiting other people too. I mean, this, this city that was, I mean, 300 years ago was nothing, you know, maybe a fishing village now is a magnificent structure. And that's, it's mm-hmm. just, I can imagine the impact that would have from somebody who wasn't from here and was coming out of a system that was preaching the opposite of those ideas getting here and saying, this is amazing. No one, no one has forced any of this. You know, this is all built by people exercising their property rights, people working, people inventing and getting ahead through non-coercion. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a, it's a great metaphor and a, a true metaphor for, for all you know, for capitalism. And for her, what makes that possible is an absence of regulation, an absence of government intervention, an absence of uh, redistribution of, of funds. You know, you, you build these huge buildings and towering businesses through your own effort, through your own productivity. You know, all these, all these government interventions are just a net negative on, on your ability to get ahead and create more surplus. So... Her, you know, her government would is very simple, you know, basically like keep us from killing one another. That's it. You know, we should have police, we should have armed services, and we should have courts to settle disputes is what she says. And just leave it at that. Yeah. And I love, I love this line that individual rights are the means of subordinating society to moral law. Hmm, yeah. And she talked, she talked about America as the first moral society because in our understanding of rights and our, our bill of rights, we removed rights from the political discussion. I think that's a, an interesting way of putting it. You know, it's our, 
our right to free speech is no isn't isn't up for debate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not dependent on which king is in power or which president. It's you know our our founding fathers took these things and carved them out and said these things are. I mean, they called them natural rights. I mean, she would call them extensions of the right to life. I think, but it's it all it amounts to removing from the conversation whether a person's basic rights can or can't be valid. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, in that sense, she says the government is the most dangerous threat to man's rights. You know, so individual rights subordinates society to moral law, like without these enumerated rights in the, the bill of rights, like there's nothing to stop others from, from impinging on your life and uh, halting your ability to survive and, and to provide for yourself. And she has a real focus that I really appreciated on uh, private property mm-hmm. because she says none of these human rights can exist without property rights. And that's, she says that a little bit differently than, than even Milton Friedman. And it really got me thinking, you know, that how, how can you have, how can you have a, a, well, for her, she's like, you, if you don't have the freedom to provide for yourself and to ensure your own survival, then you really don't have any individual rights at all. We, you have to have that basic core right to provide for yourself. Yeah. I think she looks at it more directly connected to survival. Whereas I think Friedman was seeing it more as the means by which you could possibly exercise other rights. Mm-hmm. Where I think, you know, like, well, without, without that redoubt, without that bulwark, you couldn't, you know, the other rights could easily be pushed aside because, you know, the government controls all the wealth. So they could easily impoverish you if you, even if you exercise these other rights yes, in yeah. a way that's technically legal. Yeah. I think for Rand, it's more, like everything else directly related to is this going to support my life or detract from my life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a a system without private property having individual rights. Yeah. If the government can shut down uh, your, your newspaper or, you know, today your blog, then your freedom of speech is pretty well worthless because Mm -hmm. You need, you need the private property, let's say, to be able to have the newspaper or have, have this media outlet. Because if they stop you and, and halt you from, from sharing your views, well, then you really don't have a right to free speech. She says, as a corollary to that, whoever claims the right to redistribute the wealth produced by others is claiming the right to treat human beings as chattel and basically put them into slavery. And she uses, as you said, this, this term, sacrificial animal. You know, Hmm. if some men are entitled by right to the products of the work of others, it means that those others are deprived of rights and condemned to slave labor. And there really is an element of that. And we've seen that in communist regimes where actually, well, we're not producing surplus and somebody has to take take on these dirty jobs. Uh, So we're going to throw you in a camp and you're the one who's going to like pound rocks all day. Yeah, and she takes this, I think, and and it illustrates the difference between positive rights and negative rights in a way that I don't. I think a lot of people don't understand when they're out there talking about there's a right to this, there's a right to that. You know, she says there's a right to free speech. 
but that doesn't nobody else has to do anything to give you that yeah 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 you just go out and do it you know you don't have to nobody has to listen and you can't make anybody listen you can't make anybody buy your newspaper or read your blog you know whereas these other newer rights so-called really it should be a different word because you know things like people talk there's a right to healthcare, but you know rand would say well who's who's going to give it to you yeah mm -hmm. like where at that point your right is now taking away someone else's right yeah it's a creating a responsibility on the part of someone else you're yeah you're taking a piece of somebody else's prosperity somebody else's property because these are these are benefits they're not rights whereas you know rights is normally <clears throat> understood in classical liberalism uh, they, they don't they, nobody else has to give it to you it's just something you have and you can do and you have to pay for it yourself. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. I, but I think a, a lot of people who talk about rights don't understand that out there in, in the just general political discourse. That's, yeah. that's an important yeah. distinction that, that, well, she's just a, she's a very clear writer. So it's, I think it's, she makes the distinction better than other people would just because she's good at illustrating her points. And that's what makes the book enjoyable to read, even when you come across something you disagree with, because at least you know exactly what she's saying. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And she says, you know, you're creating a responsibility on the part of others because there's no such thing as the public. She says this multiple times. There's no such mm -hmm. thing as society, no such thing as public. Society and public just implies a collection of individuals. So it's still individuals who are going to have to pay for your mooching, you know, for for your uh, unearned benefits. Somebody's going to have to provide that for you. So it means the interests, she says, of some men are to be sacrificed to the in interests and wishes of others. Because there's kind of this this assumption on on a certain side that like, well, it's not we're not taking this from you. We're just taking it from society, from the government. And it's like, okay, well, what is the government? What would John Locke say? It's a collection of individuals. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what she says. It's individuals who have to pay. And so, by uh, imposing, you know, some a right on behalf of someone, you're you're uh, when it comes to economics or you know welfare imposing that right is also imposing responsibility on someone else. Yeah. And what makes it worse is that when you are imposing these group obligations, it's never each individual within the group who gets to agree or disagree. So yeah. you, you end up really, it's never the people who have to sacrifice the most who are usually asked, do you think this is a good idea? Should we do it? You know, it's always two foxes and a chicken voting on what's for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and that, that you know, so when you when we talk of people as groups, it destroys. Not only does it not make sense as a matter of just how we exist in nature, but it, it destroys rights because they all you'll never get unanimity in any kind of sizable group. So you know, and you'll never get true representation of each person. So when rights get decided on a group level who exercises them and who they exercise them on behalf of just really obliterates a lot of what she and other classical liberals would, would call human rights. And this was expressed in a, in a crass way by Mitt Romney in 2012, when he said, you know, there's 40, 47% of people who, who receive some form of government welfare and they're never going to vote for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And Hey, that was in politic. And I, I, you know, I, I don't particularly love that he's a 
consciously, you know, knocking out an entire group of people from, from being supporters. But there, of course, is a grain of truth to that. That's what made it impolitic. That's why it was a gaffe. It's because there's some truth to it, which is that, hey, there's some folks that absolutely benefit from the current system and would benefit even more from more gifts, you know, more government largesse. And so let's be realistic. Those guys are going to vote for Democrats. They're not going to vote for me. Yeah, that was his, his deplorable moment. Of course, some of those people, uh, you know, some percentage of that 47% are actually taking uh, Social Security and Medicare, and <laughs> um, you know, which are government programs that we could d- debate, you know, all day. But but uh, plenty of those people are Republicans. Oh, yeah. Okay, so unless you have a word on that, I wanted to jump to her, her views on socialism. Um, sure which I loved because again, she goes back to property rights. The essential characteristic of socialism is the de- denial of property rights. So the denial of an individual person to, to uh, provide for his or her own uh, survival. But this is what I really liked. And it, uh, it has also this, the, the whispers of, of uh, Irving crystal too. Socialism is not a movement of the people. It's a movement of the intellectuals originated led and controlled by the intellectuals, carried by them out of their stuffy ivory towers and into the bloody fields of actual practice. I think this is right. Mm-hmm. I've always I've thought this was right for a long time, and we're seeing it playing out today with you know so much conversation about socialism. Now, is uh, Ocasio Cortez is she an intellectual? Well, I think no, but um, most of this conversation is happening at the level of uh, MSNBC and the New York Times editorial page you know it's not actually working people it's not unions the 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 union family that's uh that's calling for socialism you know they they still think that you should have to work but it's it's the the intellectuals who've gotten far out ahead of themselves because they've figured out the world yeah and it's i mean it's 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 i i always have felt that it's a a certain kind of middle-class person who thinks that the poor can never achieve anything on their own. Whereas I think a lot of people who are actually poor think, oh, I'm going to, no, I'm going to better myself. That's what this country's about. I can, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to take some hard work, but other people have done it. I can do it. It's, it's like the kind of people who, who like universal basic income, which is just a latest gloss on socialism. Yeah. It's, it's looking at a segment of, a, of our population and saying they can't do anything. They have nothing to add. Let's just give them money, shut them up you know yeah keep them from starving but really yeah, take take this bribe yeah really we know you can't do anything of value so here just take this money and i don't think that's the way most people whether you know including most poor people actually feel about the poor in america i think most folks think they have something to add and i and i agree i mean that's if you look at where it's always it's always a, you know well the next wave of technology is going to make everyone unemployed and it never comes true, but we always think right. that yeah. now everything's going to be automated. Well, I don't know. Everything we've been automating things and mechanizing things for centuries now, and there's always new jobs that get created, and there's always people who find a way to make themselves industrious and useful and earn for themselves if they want to. But yeah, socialism. I mean, you don't. It has never been an uprising from the poor. It's always been an uprising from the middle class about what they think the poor should want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's, and that gets to her point about the socialist's motive is the lust for power. And I think it, it, that's true. Like, that's true of any totalitarian movement is that they're looking at the world and saying, these people aren't doing it right. 
I know how to do it right. So I'm going to do it for them. And yeah. the only way to do yeah. that is to make them go along because obviously they're too dumb or too blinded yeah. by ideology or religion to ever do anything the right way. But I, this middle-class, middle-aged person, know more than anybody else. So I'm just going to impose that on all of you. And yeah, it's, it is... I don't think we talk about that enough, you know, is that these these Antifa kids aren't coming out of squalor. They're coming out of liberal arts colleges. Yeah, that's exactly right. Adding a little more, she's she really attacks socialism. Instead of prosperity, socialism has brought economic paralysis or collapse to every country that tried it. China, Soviet Union, Cuba, North Korea. In every case, she says, socialism has reduced the people to unspeakable property, or poverty, unspeakable uh, pro- poverty. And then she says, if, if there's any questions left in anyone's mind, just take a look at the difference uh, in terms of human welfare between West Berlin and East Berlin, West Germany and East Germany. I mean, it's just a, a contrast that's, that, that cannot be uh, ignored. Yeah, I mean, people were only trying to sneak into one of them. Only one side needed a wall in order to trap people. Yeah. We've been talking about Venezuela on this podcast on and off, and it keeps getting worse down there. And again, it should it should, it should be an object lesson that's, that's pretty clear to anyone who has eyes to see it. Yeah. This doesn't work. This takes prosperous countries and reduces them to poverty every time. Yet there are certain folks who seem hell-bent on closing their eyes to that. And it's even more clear now than it was in Rand's time. Uh, I, I don't know what we could do to make it clearer. Yeah. I mean, I think the our duty is to clarify the difference between, you know, there's socialism and there's socialism, right? I mean, you have, you have the socialism of, you know, millennials and iGen who view socialism as just kind of a hipster thing. And yeah, let's give more money to the poor. You know, that's, that's not, that's not classical socialism, let's say. That's more of a, let's have more, you know, redistribution and government intervention, which is a very different debate. And we'd have that debate, but it's a very different question than the socialism of the, of where I think Bernie Sanders wants to go, where, where a lot of these intellectuals want to go, which is all the way, you know, and they have a hard time yeah. saying anything negative about Venezuela. Instead, it's kind of like, well, okay. Yeah, well, they didn't quite do it right, you know, or whatever. Yeah, it's always it's always it's always they're doing it wrong. Yeah, no one's ever done it right. Well, like why should then why do we think you're going to do it right? Because it seems to be impossible to do right. That's <laughs> all of the the top thinkers in socialism have managed to screw it up yeah. every time. <laughs> but 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 Bernie's going to get it right because he's a great success in every other way. Well, he is a he is a best selling author, so <laughs> I guess. Maybe he's got that going for him. Okay, what's your final thoughts? He's become a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> final thoughts on on Rand is is it's her full philosophy. I think will never be acceptable to most people. And honestly, I think there's major conflicts with conservatism, especially if you're a conservative who believes in God, because she explicitly denies the value of anything beyond this human life on earth. And that, um, I think that's a, that's what got me. That's what kept me from being an objectivist when I finally thought about it back in those days. 
but there's also a lot to learn from it. And I, I think there's, there's good points about what makes, what makes for a good society, what makes for a prosperous society and how that prosperity ultimately benefits us all. And her views on, on the nature of human rights and how they, and inalienable rights is important. And it, and she's a great uh, advocate for that. And if any of you want to read something shorter than Atlas Shrugged, which is not short, the virtue of selfishness really gets to the, to the meat of it. And it's a great explanation of libertarianism generally and objectivism specifically. Mm-hmm. I just want to reiterate something you've said a couple times today, which is that she is a fantastic writer, very logical, very clear. It doesn't take much concentration to follow her train of thought. And I really appreciated that. Uh, You're not going to have to go around looking for what she means. Uh, It's it's pretty clear what she's trying to say. And and in that sense, like uh, I highly recommend her as a writer, but I also really appreciated the fact that she's putting forward these these out of the box ideas and it is a little jarring and it does you know knock you back a little bit it's like wow really that but you know it's so much food for thought which i really appreciated and you don't read stuff like this every day like different ideas from a very different perspective and whether you agree with it or not i i suspect that there's some level of agreement for a lot of people especially conservatives but then of course there's a lot uh, you know, plenty of room for disagreement. But So that's Ayn Rand. Glad we did it. For next time, we're going to read The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama, published in 1992. So hopefully we'll catch us then. Thanks.